From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The public could soon have access to every unclassified report from the Department of Defense. A new amendment in the National Defense Authorization Act would require the Pentagon to put all unclassified documents on its website and include a placeholder for reports that it can't release. Defense News reports the House Armed Services Committee will mark up its version of the NDAA July 1st. The Navy's next-gen enterprise uh, network's IT management contract is back on track after the Government Accountability Office dismissed three protests. The GAO denied two protests from Prospecta last week. NextGov reports the $7.7 billion contract went to Lidos. The General Services Administration says it'll cut off agencies from existing telecom contracts to get them to move to the newest one faster. New guidance from the agency says it will stop new orders and modifications on networks and other contracts by September 30th. FCW reports the agency is standing by on its EIS transition deadline of 2023. The Department of Veterans Affairs has some work to do in implementing the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act, according to the VA's Inspector General. It finds the chief information officer didn't approve 70% of IT acquisitions over the first three quarters of fiscal year 2018. Michael Bowman is director of information technology and security audits at the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General. Michael, thanks very much for coming on. What did you look at specifically when you first started to investigate this issue? Well, we were focusing on IT acquisitions that were made out of the chief information officers program office. Uh, specifically acquisitions that supported Veterans Health Administration, Veterans Benefit Administration, the National Cemeteries, just to get a feeling whether or not the CIO was aware of the IT acquisitions through these administrations, uh, was able to weigh in on the budget ex execution and to ensure that these acquisitions were adequately secure before connecting to the network. A couple of, uh, of findings that I want to ask you about, just have you give me a little bit of color on each one of these. VA policy and processes limit the CIO's review of certain IT investments, and it looks like from what you found, that was done in one case by the CIO herself. Yeah, there are certain acquisitions just because of the numerous transactions. IT acquisitions under 100,000 was exempt uh, from the CIO's direct review just to make sure the acquisition process flowed smoothly. Uh, VHA, the Veteran Health Administration, also had a conflicting policy where if they purchased biomedical devices, uh, the CIO did not have to approve those acquisitions before that they were acquired and connected to the network. So there are several conflicting policies that prevented the CIO to have the awareness of all IT acquisitions across the enterprise. So when you first said you looked at IT acquisitions, it strikes me those are two of the of the big specialties that we talk about on this program all the time. And IT is in a bucket and acquisition is a bucket. And I wonder if maybe that's not part of the problem here. And that problem isn't probably peculiar to the Department of Veterans Affairs, but that the IT organization and the acquisition organization are not always efficient at coordinating information with each other. Is that kind of the, the main crux of the issue here? Absolutely. This is a FATARA awareness issue. So FATARA has been in a statutory law for several years now 
but the staff offices are unaware of the requirement for the CIO to review and approve these acquisitions. And sometimes what they're procuring, uh, they're unaware that there's actually IT in the background supporting the procurements and that the CIO needs to have awareness and be involved in that budget and execution process. So it's an awareness and, it, and it's maybe how the purchases are described uh, in the acquisition process that there's an awareness that the CIO needs to be involved. Six recommendations, and I want to ask you about a couple of them. We don't have time to talk, talk about all six, but um, in addition to knowing more about your recommendation, I'm, I'm curious about whether you have a vision or just the fact that this is something that uh, the parts of VA should look at. The first one's ensuring the CIO's review and approval of all IT acquisitions and kind of pursuant to our conversation a moment ago, sounds like the recommendation there is as important for the acquisition piece of VA as for the IT piece. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so within VA, you've got various lines of administration. You've got Veteran Health Administration, Veterans Benefit Administration, NCA, National Cemetery, and they all need to coordinate with the CIO when they're formulating their budgets, when they're identifying IT acquisitions to make sure the CIO is part of that process. So it, it's an effort that uh, extends across the whole agency. It just does not involve just the CIO, but every program office throughout VA. Another recommendation that you make is submitting a CIO assignment plan for OMB's review and approval. What would be in that plan? Do you have guidance for what should be in it, or is it just that that plan needs to be created and submitted? It's more of an OMB compliance issue that uh, has to describe the dollar thresholds of where the CIO will get involved, the dollar thresholds when he could delegate it uh, down the organizational chain uh, if there are lesser dollar amounts. And it's just a process of making sure that plan is presented to OMB that, so they can uh, approve it. Uh, but so far, VA has not accomplished that. Among these recommendations, these two seem to be the big kahunas. Implementing an agency-wide IT acquisition awareness and training program, covering FATARA requirements, and providing clear and consistent acquisition processes to ensure compliance with FATARA requirements. That's really getting at the crux of the problem here, isn't it? Yeah, when you're talking root cause, uh, you come down to training, you come down to awareness, you come down to eliminating conflicting policies. And you know that way the CIO can, can have awareness uh, of all IT acquisitions. Until you get rid of those disconnects, uh, the CIO is not going to be have the awareness that's consistent with the FATARA requirements. I note to that end that uh, in an addendum to this work, uh, your colleague uh, Larry Reichenmeyer writes: the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary requested the closure recommendation three. As VA signed a memorandum titled Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act Acquisition Compliance, what's the result of that one as, uh, as it goes, Mike? So, yeah, so that was just mainly a policy that can be communicated across all VA program offices that gives the CIO authority to be involved in the IT acquisitions in the planning, programming, budget, and execution process. So it's just stating. Uh, very clearly, the CIO has to have a role in all IT acquisitions. So it's a starting point. Uh, you know, what, what's been troublesome to VA in the past is uh, they can write the policy. It's a little more difficult to implement the policy. We have about a minute left. Uh, this report says the chief of staff uh, agreed with the eight recommendations that were uh, headed in her direction. Uh, the CIO uh, agreed with the two recommendations headed toward him. How will you follow up on this? How will you track this to make sure that these recommendations get get closed? 
We, we do have a formal follow-up process within the Office of Inspector General. So when, uh, when VA or OINT, the CIO's office, requests closure of a recommendation, we have to see the supporting documentation. We have to verify that the business process is in place and working as intended. So we need to see proof that the corrective actions are effective and that they are addressing the recommendation. So it, sometimes it takes uh, several years to close out recommendations. Mike Bowman, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. Up next, reforming FedRAMP with an eye toward the future. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's making the program slower and more expensive and how to fix it. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Back to Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, FedRAMP has made several improvements since it started, but the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation says there is room for improvement. That improvement could include changes industry's been calling for for a long time. Michael McLaughlin is a research analyst at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Michael, thanks very much for coming on the program. What generated your interest in looking at FedRAMP in the first place? Well, the first place is we just have been hearing stories that the program was still taking too long to provide authorizations. I had read congressional testimony last year from a company that had said it cost them more than a million dollars to receive an authorization. And that's really concerning because cloud services have already helped the government save hundreds of millions of dollars um, in cost savings, and they've helped these agencies meet their mission. So it's concerning when you hear a program could potentially be slowing down their adoption of cloud services. You write in this report that uh, one of the, uh, the proposals that you include is expanding the JAB, the Joint Authorization Board. And one of the benefits that you propose is it would provide CSPs greater access to a process many consider a gold standard. If people consider it a gold standard, it sounds like you don't think the process should change. It's more about scalability. Am I reading that right, Michael? At the JAB, yes, that is a process that many cloud service providers really like because there's more consistency. There's a concern that different agencies implement the FedRAMP process in different ways and they have different levels of knowledge. So some agencies are simply better at implementing the program than others. And that leads to a concern where some cloud service providers actually essentially go agency shopping, where they're trying to find the best agency to get an authorization for their service because they can believe it can happen in a faster manner. The JAB, which has a very good reputation for authorizing the service and doing the security reviews in a high quality manner, is considered that gold standard. The issue, though, is there's a lack of resources, so they can only review about three cloud service providers a quarter. What we would like to see is them be able to scale up and review any cloud service provider or product that meets their standards. What's, the sen your, what's your sense of what the enlarged JAB would look like? Who should be on it? Who's qualified to be on it? And what would that look like, Michael? We would expand. Um, so right now we have 
the members from DHS, from DOD, and the General Services Administration. So we would expand it to include the CIOs from different members of the CIO Council. So really any of those CIO, CIOs would work. But the really important thing is hiring more people to be actual the job reviewers. These are the people that are reviewing these services on a day-to-day -day as part of their job. Um, and that's really the key to being able to expand the program. One of the other recommendations that you make that Congress should take on is requiring FedRAMP liaisons at each agency. What would that liaison office look like and what would that person do, Michael? So this is actually a program that just about a week ago, the FedRAMP Program Management Office, which manages the day-to-day -day of the program, they've actually started to implement. They have more than 30 agencies that are participating in it right now. And essentially, they're trying to create leads at each of these federal agencies. They're trying to train them so that they're going to be the local expert. They're going to be the person that can talk to the cloud service providers that are trying to get uh, an authorization at the agency. And they're going to be the expert within the agency to answer any questions that are happening from, say, their fellow peers or staff. What we would like to see, though, is see that really be mandated. We think that's a good idea. That's a good program. Right now, more than 30 agencies are participating in it. But really, any agency that's procuring cloud products or services, which in this day and age should be really any federal government agency, should really be participating in that program and develop like a federal lead or a federal liaison at their own agency. You talked at the beginning of our conversation, Michael, about speed and, and the importance of making these authorizations happen faster. One of the recommendations that you make for Congress is to expand the number of metrics tracked. Do you worry that it's possible that by having to track more things, it will actually take longer for some of these things to happen? So the reason I don't is just because what we're saying is start to expand the metrics tracking for small businesses, which is one of the areas that FedRAMP wants to push back on the idea is that they're a barrier to small businesses. Right now, the program has improved and in increasing the transparency of some of the metrics. So if you go to FedRAMPMarketplace.gov, which is essentially a website for FedRAMP, and it lists all the authorizations for the different cloud services, what agencies have authorized them, They've begun to put timelines saying that this authorization process happened at X date and this product was authorized at Y date. We just want to add on a little more information there and start to track, you know, what's the size of these companies and start to see, are there certain companies that are going through this authorization process faster? Why is that? Is that because they're a large company and they have the people to be able to comply with the program? If so, then we may want to make some adjustments, uh, some adjustments, I should say, so that small businesses can better uh, handle the program's requirements. One of the recommendations that you make for FedRAMP is to conduct monthly meetings with those liaisons. What should those meetings cover? Or is it more just the idea that there's an ongoing communications vehicle that you think is important, Michael? So the ongoing communications vehicle is important, but really they should be talking about best practices. They should be talking about the ways they see cloud service providers implementing different controls. So at different levels, there's up to more than 400 security controls that cloud service providers have to implement. And there's different ways they can implement them. So they should be talking about you know, what are the best ways to implement that control to enhance security at their, enhance security at their agencies, but at the same time, talk about the best practices that they've found that are able to speed up the authorization process. There is a lot more here that I would like to cover, but we don't have time, Michael. Thanks very much for coming on and talking about your work. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Up next, taking workplace trainings to the web straight ahead on Government Matters, a new approach for teaching the federal workforce. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. As restrictions lift and offices start opening again, some agencies want to keep telework options open. Digital training could be a huge boost to the new digital landscape of federal agencies. Andrea Ippolito is a lecturer in the engineering management program at Cornell University. Andrea, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Where are the biggest opportunities for federal agencies to leverage digital training? And give me a quick thumbnail of what you mean by digital training in the first place, Andrea. Well, thanks so much for having me. So first off, I think the federal government needs to continue to lean in having a digital first mentality. It's so planning around their teams for being virtual. Whereas in the old ways of doing things, it was always about being in person and having that mentality and mindset. So if you have a digital focused first mentality, it means that you plan your team using virtual tools, whether that's Slack, and by digital training, what we mean is folks that are confident and conversant in digital tools. I know often people tend to Heisman um, a lot of digital tools if you're not familiar with it. Um, I'm an engineer and engineers traditionally, we Heisman the business side. A lot of what I do now is teach students the business side along with the technical side. Same thing applies to digital focus in government as well. We need to educate our employees, our workforce on how to use these digital tools so they feel confident confident and continue to iterate and improve upon them. So that's the first step, right? To, to let folks know, here's the landscape of possibilities that are available to you. Here are the benefits that you realize by using these tools, and then let's get started on figuring out how to apply them to your business processes. Am I on the right track? Exactly. And then giving them that grace period to experiment and evolve. And as a team, you need to decide what are the practices that you'll use as a team. And after two, three, four weeks, if those aren't working, then you can evolve and iterate. And that's the beautiful thing about using digital tools in government and having this agile mindset is that if it doesn't work for you and your team, then get rid of it quickly before you have engaged in practices that um, cement you in them for a very long time. How does this concept apply specifically to training? What, what difference can this make in the training environment? I imagine the potential is pretty profound given how dispersed the workforce is now and potentially could be in the future, Andrea. Absolutely. So I think we need to expose our federal employees, obviously, early in the process. But the reality is that we have thousands of federal employees um, that are using these tools right now or not using these tools right now. So what we need to do via training is give them access to these tools with their team, identify strategies to make it work for them, and then practice them and set goals. So this week, let's try to introduce something like Slack and let's all commit to using it. Here are our best practices or promising practices for engaging with something like Slack. And then let's see how it goes. And then in our weekly standup or our daily standup, whatever operating rhythm you have for your team, let's check in and see how it's going. Are there types of training or types of communications environments that aren't appropriate for digital environments that could be exacerbated by this dispersal of the, of the workforce, Andrea? Training environments that aren't directly related, none that immediately come to mind, but I think everything of course needs to be secure and protected. Um, and so making sure you're working very closely with your tech team to ensure that, but also just educating folks on the general best practices for how to use these tools. Um, and also give them that wiggle room to make mistakes. But of course there are those mistakes like anything dealing with security and privacy that you don't wanna overstep.
But what you're getting at is all the cultural and worldview stuff, not the technical things, because the technical people that I've talked to throughout all of this say, that part's fine, we've got that nailed. We can make these tools secure, we can make the infrastructure secure, we're, our, our people are working fairly securely from all of these remote environments already. So it strikes me that that's really the crux of the problem here, and that's what you're talking about addressing with this experiment and evolve mentality in particular, it seems to me. Absolutely. So when I was the director of the Innovators Network at the Department of Veterans Affairs, we stood up a new position called an innovation specialist, which was working with veterans, working with VA employees across the country. And what we learned when we were introducing a new mindset design thinking into that workforce is we learned that you have to give them A, the training, but then you have to give them that sandbox environment to try on these new tools for size. And if you don't give them that sandbox, and then they have that confidence from that training, then they never get adopted. So you need to give them a mentor, a coach, and also know that you have their back if they do make a mistake, but also give them that room to grow and learn agilely. We have about a minute left, Andrea. What did you learn about when is it's time to pull the plug on something or when it's time to shift gears to decide this isn't what we want, this isn't suiting our needs, we need to go in a different direction? Well, tactically, in your daily stand-up or weekly stand-up, whatever operating rhythm your team has, you need to check in and see how your employees are using it. And then secondly, and this sounds pretty obvious, but if they're not using it, so if they're straight up not using it and it's not getting adopted, then you need to move on quickly. Don't try to force it along and push it along. Um, you need to evolve quickly and try another tool and make it work for your team. Andrea, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.